0: Hi, and thanks for joining us for Premium's podcast series. I'm Matt Van Dyke, General Manager for Queensland and the Northern Territory. And today I'm joined by Peter Warren. He's the Managing Director of Finura Group, a leading technology and consulting firm. Finura advises some of Australia and the UK's leading financial services companies on their, on their strategy and execution. Peter, thanks for joining us. Great to have you here today. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. One of the and Peter and I were having a brief chat before we started today's podcast. There's some really interesting things that are, are taking space around technology and how businesses are considering technology. And, and really the first question, Peter, I wanted to, to sort of run past you and, and riff on a little bit today was around satisfaction, because we've really seen that satisfaction is consistently being reported, both anecdotally and in many polls, as a problem for, for many, many people. And and ever since PC's it became a feature in modern offices a generation ago. We've seen people saying, look, we're not happy with this, we're not happy with that. You've really worked with a lot of advice groups and you've been consulting on their technology health. What do you seem to find as being the, the root cause of this?
1: Yeah, um, the data certainly suggests you're right. Satisfaction's never been lower. With financial advice software, according to the latest um, investment trend survey, it's at an all-time low—fifty-eight percent or lower, which is diabolical. Um, platforms much higher, though, Matt. You'd be pleased to see everyone seems to like their platform, just not their software. And maybe some of the answers to that are in, in that question. Um, oh look, I, I think there's two aspects. I think um, you know the the industry, the software industry for financial advisors, is, is fairly small in Australia, so mm-hmm. there hasn't been the same um, flight of capital. Into our sector for R and D and to make products better because the addressable market is just not that big. Um, pretty capital constrained, and um, and also in the low cases, advisors don't want to spend a lot of money on software. So perhaps it's a chicken and egg problem. Platforms, totally different story because um, there's a lot of really successful companies like Premium and others that have built
0: great businesses on the back of that. So well, I, it's. I, I was going to say it's a really interesting point though because platforms aren't paid for by the advice firm. Usually either, unless it's a software as a service product, which which we do have, but it's the, the end investor, which is I can be paid for the platform through their administration fees, not the advice business. Right. Uh, and for the numbers nerds on the podcast like me, we're we're talking at circa fifteen thousand six hundred, I think, advisors now, uh, as of you know end of August 2023. If you're going to put the capital towards developing software, if if that's the size of your addressable market you know, that's got to put a price on on software or how much you're going to be getting investing. Uh, that can generate some very scary numbers really, really quickly when you're looking at what your, your ROI or your return on investment's got to be for the amount of capital that you're going to be putting in to not only create but then service that sort of tech debt.
1: Yeah, spot on. And, um, and you know, if you look at other more successful software companies in the B2B space, um, Zero is the one I go to quite a lot. They made yeah. their software actually free for accountants and they charge the small business user. You know, and that's um, and that would be genius strategy because accountants are like financial advisors; they want to spend a lot of money, and no one's quite cracked that um, in wealth management. And maybe this is why, in you know, actual fact, platforms are playing an increasing role in technology for that reason. Um, so that's sort of the economics. But I think back to the behavioural side and why people are less satisfied with software. Um, I do like this idea of liquid expectations, and it basically means that our our senses of satisfaction are often governed by our most recent experiences of something in a parallel so if i'm using netflix or i'm using my iphone or some of these amazing apps that you know we and like particularly my children take completely for granted today that just work out of the box and are really intuitive um we kind of start to expect that in our daily life with the other software solutions we use so so if you go from that and then you go into use one of the more traditional financial planning solutions you sort of go gee the ui looks a bit old looks a bit tired you know there's a lot of friction here clunky all those things and go gee why not better so i think that's driving it um, i think there's a it's it's the amount of effort that has to go on customization and configuration of software is really misunderstood so i, I could talk to two users of the same software solution and get two really different stories on their satisfaction levels. And what I tend to find is the user that's actually spent a lot of time on configuration, customization and training of the software solution is always happier. It's just by and large. And we have this, you know, view or this idea that Oh, it should just work out of the box. Well, software built for consumers works out of the box. That's how it's got to work by design. Software for businesses has never worked that way. So, in every other vertical, every other industry out there, the customer, the business, needs to spend time configuring the solution to work for them. Because as businesses, we do things really all really differently. And financial planning, in particular, we have literally found millions of ways of doing this processes across business to business. You know, this is the platform, right? This is a challenge for platforms to think so. I think part of it's the software uh, not maybe reinvesting enough in the UI and the experience. Uh, I think part of it's the user as well, and we just haven't um, got that. Now, what I would say is that's changing a lot as businesses are more corporatizing. they're understanding they've got to spend money on software. Um, but don't get me wrong, we, we come across just as many unhappy Salesforce users, which is widely regarded as the best CRM in the world, really unhappy Salesforce users, as we do you know, small little CRM sort of. You know, very very limited functionality. So it's just like everything in life; it's just it's what you put into it that you get out of it. And, um, and I think that's driving a lot of satisfaction
0: issues. Yeah. So is it really, I guess, a combination of the the inherent complexity that comes in having a, I guess, an, an engine room grade level of technology and need to be able to manipulate different things. Uh, as well as what we're getting very much used to in terms of, you know, how we run these large consumer-scale apps and just kind of that that disconnect going, why can't something run as well as what I'm running on, on my phone that my kids use, whereas I've got to use something that's just, you know, it's not sexy, it's not cool, it seems to add friction, not remove it.
1: Yeah, and I think,
0: you know, the, the economics are quite you know obvious in
1: the sense that Facebook or Meta, who owns Instagram, it's a – $400 billion dollar market cap company, Iris, that runs most of the software for Australia, is now a $1.2 billion company as of this week. Um, so, the, just the sheer amount of capital they have to spend on UI and the cloud computing and the infrastructure. And anyone that's in software knows how much infrastructure costs now for cloud computing. It's so expensive to do anything, um, just knows that there's some issues there. So, compromises have to be made. And don't forget I mean, if these software companies don't make a profit, they they won't provide these software solutions for our market. So I I I, I think this is why I, I do I do say to advice to them, strap yourself in for more expensive software because that's the only way
0: yeah. things are going to get better. I remember when Apple hit um, a sort of seven hundred bill market cap a number of years ago, and which was exchange rates it was about a trillion was mm. at the time. You could literally buy the top twenty companies if you were to liquidate Apple down to dollar coins in the ASX. So that was all you buy as a CSO. Um, CSR, sorry, not CSRO. Um, clock clear, Banks, Telcos. Yeah. Everyone coming through there, top 20 businesses at the big end of town. And it's just the 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 scale is is kind of a bit missed there. Yeah. Talking about um uh, businesses though, like um Meta particularly, so who who run Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook that I can think of. I can't remember if they bought Snapper if that was someone else. Uh There was a saying that came out with those businesses where, you know, a lot of people perceive them to be free. And uh, it was that, it's that, I'm reminded of that comment that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And if you're not paying for a product, it means you are the product. Yep. What I was then reflecting on, again, was the rise of generative AI tools. You know, your, your chat GPT is to go with something that's, you know, so hot right now. I think there are, and I'm keen to get your thoughts for the audience on this, there are some real challenges around how much information is being fed, privacy of information, how that's being used, and then how how privacy leads into cybersecurity. How, as a business, you might be making rules around what's used and what's not, but how are you ensuring that's being followed by your staff, and particularly for staff that might see it as almost becoming an ubiquitous part of their life?
1: Yeah, totally, um, and we're literally learning daily as to what this all means. Um, So you're right. The free component of ChatGPT, and there is a paid version, which is just faster and, you know, different things, but the free version, uh, the reason it's free is um, everyone that uses is actually training the product to make it better, okay? Um, And But, of course, that will change in time because the sheer costs of running ChatGPT, the cost per search, are enormous because the computing power that's got to go behind it. Look at the NVIDIA share price. It'll tell you everything you need to know about why, you know, the GPUs, particularly to run these models are so valuable. Um, So if we go back a step, why does it really matter? Well, obviously, if you're just at home trying to work out, um, you know, writing, how do I write a funny Christmas card to my mother-in-law, that's fine for ChatGPT. They'll do And they'll do lots of cool stuff. But the minute you start creeping your work life, particularly dealing with consumers, um, you've got to be more mindful. So we're, we're quite big on, and as always, the, you, know, you can't see around and wait for regulation. I mean, crypto was only regulated a few months ago. As a financial product, I mean, hell, you know? Yeah, literally trillions have been lost, and we're only regulating. that so you anyway, know, don't get me started on that. But yeah. but let's look at AI. <laughs> so, so the short answer is, um, the the regulations are never going to tell you what to do because they'll never be fast enough. So you got to get on the front foot with your staff. So um, what, by and large, um, certainly for Nura, we don't believe in draconian ban it like i've seen a lot of big companies ban it it's naive people can use on their phone you know people have always found ways to get around this stuff the same thing happened with social media right back in the day you couldn't use social media at work and that just ever works so mobiles killed that but i think from a work environment point of view um there are steps you can take as an enterprise just to lock that down so for example uh microsoft bing has is a search um, capability built into its model there is a bing enterprise version chat ChatGPT, which for example finura uses so all of us use that version it's a locked in environment where effectively we use that large language model but we only use it on our large data and nothing goes outside of it so that's a simple thing most businesses can turn on just to mitigate some of that risk now you're never going to fully mitigate the risk that um you know a billion power is going to put something in his phone around. Unfortunately, humans are going to do human things, but that is a reasonable thing I think a business can do to mitigate some of that. And I'd encourage you to speak to your managed service IT provider to turn on that capability.
0: They know exactly what you're talking about. Brilliant. I think there's, you know, we're starting to sort of move into some areas around what is the need of an advice practice manager or owner to understand how technology is being used in the business. And this sort of plays out in a number of of, of interesting ways because we were, uh, and look, for those of you that love to go and do it, Peter and I have just done a a webinar where we've touched on a lot of these concepts you can find on the premium website. But one of the concepts that sort of came up was around what proper due diligence looks like and how that stopped people from... Uh, activating their ideal outcome when they're, they're taking on a new form of, of software. And I was thinking at the time when we were going through it, Peter, that I feel that a lot of advisors and advice business owners and managers don't actually know what proper DD fundamentally looks like. I actually remember presenting to a, a large group of advisors once and the concept of cybersecurity kept my presentation, and an advisor said to me at the time, look, I don't have time to think about cybersecurity. That's my licensee's problem. So I remember side-eyeing the owner of the licence who was sitting a couple of desks away and the expression on his face told a 1,000 words uh, at that particular time. And so, look, that's certainly an extreme example where someone's completely, Mm. you know, abdicating any responsibility for things blowing up digitally. But if people are thinking about, okay, I get that proper due diligence is important, where do I start? How do I start? What does my... IT committee look like? Do I need an IT committee? Can you offer some suggestions to the audience around how they might want to consider solving that question around what does proper DD really look like and how to start?
1: Mm.
0: Um, oh, look, I, I think I said in the
1: webinar, like I can't stand committees generally, but uh, I'm going to recommend it. A- at least a working group of the willing, I'd call it. So, what yeah. I would say if, you, if you've got if you've got people in your business that really enjoy this stuff, then it makes sense to utilise their talents and get them invested in it and create it. And we certainly, Fedora, we you know we work um, so quite often. We'll sit. Um, as an advisor to the business, you know, bringing that outside perspective. I'll consult boards, I'll do different things, or we'll run that process. But we would always insist on an internal person kind of um, being involved. Um, but I think having some sort of um, forum where IT issues or software issues can be brought to the table is important. And importantly, uh, where if the business is big enough, particularly where there's sort of representatives of different stakeholders of the business where you can get, People's requirements and feedback and all those kind of things in place so actually you can make some better decisions moving forward. Um, I find it quite incredible that so many software decisions are made by advisors and practice owners, and it's the poor support staff that inherit those decisions <laughs> and are not part of the process. I'm quite critical of software companies that don't spend any time with the back office staff in the sales process, who frankly are the user and the most critical eye on these things. You want to know good software, what soft good software is, go talk to Paraplanners, they'll tell you exactly. What's good and what's not. So I, I just think it's that human element of the decision-making process needs to be better. In the same way that um, some advisors are great advisors, but they're not good at pick and manage funds you get an asset consultant for that or, you know, it's the same thing for me. So um, I, I just think that that that's logical what you can do. Um, you know, we, we have, and your licensee or people like Fenero do have some resources you can use to give software vendors some due diligence questions to ask. Um, often we'll make those questions more around how many users they got, Satisfaction levels, support levels, just that kind of stuff. Their economic viability is an important question to ask, just to go eyes wide open. And and recommendations and endorsements from people who are frankly not shareholders of the business or advisors that are invested in and think it's a good idea. So and but I you just say that about any price, right? At the end of the day. Um, they, they they for me are the right things. But but I think even then upper level a bit is, you know, ask yourself that. Fundamental question, what why are we doing this again? What what is this really going to address in our business? Is it going to solve the issue we think it will? And so often we we just find the wrong thing put in for the wrong reasons and combination of those factors. So, so Matt, there's not a single issue there, but I think it's a combination of um yeah, standard tickets of the game due diligence on the provider, but more importantly, just spending time as a
0: business saying, well, What are we what are we really trying to solve here? Mm. And why? And I think as as well, the other key point is going, you know, maybe it's not Depending on the size of the business, and and I understand that there's going to be resource limit. There's resource limitations for every business, no matter size. But going, hey, maybe it's not me that needs to solve this. Maybe I've got staff that can do it. Maybe I can partner with someone to do it. You know, think outside, so it's not going to be a problem. Because it, um, and I think sort of really my my last question on on today's conversation, but before you know, move on to something that's hopefully a little bit more um, you know uh, aspirational, longer term, looking to a brighter future. When I'm thinking about risk and governance, we know cybersecurity is that key priority. But it's a bit like, you know, when you're thinking about investment, it's like risk and liquidity. By the time it's a problem, it's far too late Mm. to really do anything about it. So we'd be keen to get your thoughts, Peter, on what FNUR has observed as what those key areas are that really need addressing in the cybersecurity space. So if anyone's going to be kind of going checklist, do I think I'm on the right track? Yep. What does that really look like? Uh
1: so three key things. First one is training of staff. So um then yeah, I'm I'm on three or four different boards. I've got to do cybersecurity training for all of them, which is quite frustrating because they're all different courses. But that's part of our governance model. Every employee, top to bottom, director, whoever you are, does cyber training, learning what to do and not to do. Um they do the companies I'm involved with, we do phishing tests, we do all sorts of tests to see. Are our employees clicking on things they shouldn't be clicking? I think you've got to do that. That's the, that's probably the first thing because most cyber incidents are generally caused by a human making mm-hmm. a mistake, okay, um, and usually the employee. The second uh, part of the equation is probably more um, operational, and that is how do we share data with our clients, with our external partners, with our stakeholders? Um, so um, there was a question, a really smart question in the webinar going, why is an email secure? And the simple reason, it's not about your email security, it's about your counterparty. Um, So um, often you can't control what happens to something on the other side, um, but ultimately it's your data. You're on the hook if things go wrong. That's why you want to create secure environments that people can access information. So we're big fans of people using uh, document sharing portals to share sensitive stuff so you got the hen all that. So that's a, sort that's of a processing. Um, and the third one is definitely around password management protocols. We're still, you know, the amount of businesses that are still trying to save money, save a few bucks here and there on licences by sharing passwords. We know people do it. We know there's WhatsApp groups going around and people sharing Xplan logins and all sorts of stuff. It's got to stop. Part of being a profession is paying for the tools that we use to do our jobs, right? And i um, happy to take the stand in the industry that I think, you know, I think multi-factor authentication should be mandated in all software financial advisors years. Um I mean, advisors are lucky. Iris haven't done this yet. I reckon they will in time um, because I just think it's just such an obvious way something's going to go wrong from my perspective. So, um, yes, yeah, so I think to summarize that, it would be uh, definitely the training, processes and document management and password management. They're the three really small, low-hanging fruit
0: things you can do. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks for that. I think to, to sort of move on to uh, some positive changes that people, or well, everything we've talked about, be are positive changes. But a lot of uh, advice firms that I'm speaking to are often sort of asking the question around what's the right number of technology platforms to use, and where do they really start in creating a framework to evaluate that? So a business is going right, how do I how do I right size my business from a technology perspective? How can I begin thinking about that?
1: Yeah, and there's variables into that equation. So it will come down to the type of business you run. Are you a pure financial planning, wealth management business? Are you wholesale? Are you retail? Are you multidisciplinary? Do you have accounting, lending, other services? So there's a whole bit of nuance there around those things which will go into that. And you know, certainly one would argue that As the complexion of the business changes, it may change the software, it may change the CRM you use, and and those things will will play a factor. Um, I I think though we we look at what are the core pillars, and and the core pillars really for us are uh, what is that central source of data, central source of truth that we use across our business to make um, decisions, execute on client engagement, and that's a CRM component. Um, There's the productivity side of our business: how do we communicate internally, how do we share documents, how do we collaborate, and you know, for most businesses, it's Microsoft or Google and 95% of them the Microsoft suites. And, and are we maximizing what we get for free or included in our Microsoft price out of that? Amazed how many businesses don't use the full power of that Microsoft suite. Um, and then the final component is probably the more that client front end piece, which I reckon which I think is the most underinvested and undervalued part of it is the sense that, you know, post-COVID, people people really I think people sometimes really underestimate their clients how digitally savvy they are. I mean, mm. a year and a half ago, you couldn't go to a restaurant in Melbourne without knowing how to use an app and a QR code. You couldn't order food without a QR code, you know, in a restaurant, and in some cases still today. It didn't matter how old you were, you know, that you use this stuff. And I, I, I think, um, you know, I think retirees are more digitally savvy than ever before and I think we will quite – willingly embrace a more digital relationship with their advisor. They still want the personal relationship. Don't get me wrong, that, that goes away. But there's so many things you can be doing via portals and things like that for the future. And I think, and I think that's really where the, the game should be played in the future is all the back office stuff. that you know, Clients don't know whether you use X-Plan or what CRM is. They don't care, nor should they. But they do care about how you share data with them, how you engage them, how you book appointments with them, how the video chat works. They're the things I'd be spending my time on. And I reckon they're the really exciting things that are, frankly, the bar's pretty low. It's pretty easy to differentiate yourself on that stuff.
0: We've seen a a really interesting sort of um, this play out in quite an interesting way where you're right, it's the experience that someone's getting in a lot of other facets of their life, whether it's booking a table at a restaurant, booking their car in for a service. Almost every other business that they're engaging with has some form of, yep, digital mechanism to go, I need an appointment. hairdresser, barber, doctor, dentist, it's almost all done online and not handled by a receptionist or almost in, in rare cases. And so you've got to say, well, why would, why would we be any different? What we're also seeing is that for, there's this interesting way that's playing out with firms where they might have a slightly older demographic of client and they're starting to consider about, okay, so it's, it's not so much about managing wealth, we're now thinking about transferring wealth to the next generation. And so it's feeding into that intergenerational wealth transfer concept. And, of course, what we're seeing is the next generation of client that's going to be either inheriting or managing the wealth from the the benefactor, the beneficiaries, if they're not seeing that modern interface or if they're not seeing an advice business that appears to be keeping up with how technology should be used in a professional manner, they're thinking maybe this isn't the right firm for us anymore. Let's let's find someone that's actually going to suit our generation or our needs. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's a really interesting consideration there for any business that's thinking about, what if, I, if I'm going to be in business two years, five years, 10 years from now, what have I got to be doing today to make sure I'm not going to be making some very painful, expensive mistakes along the way uh, before we come out? Uh, Peter, last question for you today um, is really a, an open question um for you to i guess flag to the audience that if there was one thing that you'd ask people to either think about consider or be encouraged and excited about in the tech space relative to our profession what might that look like what are really you excited about or or what are some of the trends changes what's coming up around the corner that you think is going to really make technology and advice businesses really sing together quite beautifully
1: uh Oh gee, it's going to be such a cliche, but I, I am I am really going to say the co-pilot capability that Microsoft is about to give us all. Oh yeah,
0: cool. Yep,
1: it's just going to touch every role in a business. You know, it's, it's very very few times in life where something comes along that really touches everyone's jobs. So, you know, when email first happened in someone's career, now that was you know, in my career, email has kind of happened. It was established. But when email happened or when mobile kind of first happened, I remember mobile. I remember my first BlackBerry. Um, yeah. There was just the time. It just changed the way every, way we worked, you know, and I really genuinely feel that's we're in this moment now. And I would encourage um, businesses that can afford to do it, uh, large businesses, Get a few interns in the next couple of years to work over your summer break, kids from uni. They might not want to be advisors, but that's okay. They just want some experience who are growing up in this AI world, and they're going to think really differently about jobs and tasks and how you do things. Get them in your business and go, hey, how would you use these co-pilots? What should we be doing differently? What can we learn from them? Um, I love the saying. Um, I follow uh, his, his NYU professor, Scott Galloway, that puts a lot of content out, and he says that AI won't replace people, but people that use AI will. I, just yeah. hang on to that. And, and yeah. I just think, yeah, so it's not going to be an X-Plan replacement. It's not going to be this or that. Like, don't get you – know, those things will be what they'll be. But I just think it's a ubiquitous change that's happening to everyone. And I just think uh, embrace it, move mindfully through it, and think about it in a way of how can it just make us so much better what we do. And and so that, for me, is the big the big winner for the next so three It's a big disruptor.
0: It's a case of um, don't be like that person hanging onto a taxi licence when Uber's coming out thinking that – you know, this is going to be the way forward
1: yeah and and you know i mean i have i mean look frankly for a lot of businesses we talk to emails dead they just use teams and slack and these things um even if for Nura, the only emails i ever send are the, our clients and if they have a slack channel i'd rather use that with them so there are moments and you know what that's a bloody good thing because email is terrible we hate it so i i i genuinely feel um the roles we have in our business the people and the capability we have in our business is really going to change and and the really exciting thing for business owners and advisors it'll hopefully expand the number of clients you can serve at a much more reasonable cost you have less people doing horrible jobs matching data on spreadsheets and you know data matching commissions reports people don't go to uni for 4 years to do that work they go to uni to be creative and talk to people and build things and 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 i think um yeah there's this wonderful change that's going to come through the white collar roles and um, the awesome thing about the advice industry is we've got a whole bunch of IFA, small business run by entrepreneurs that can kind of embrace this stuff really quickly so i reckon be one of those firms
0: brilliant that's great well peter thanks for joining us for our advice leaders podcast today it has been excellent getting to work with you once again um, certainly to the audience i'd encourage you to reach out to peter and tiffany if you think that they can be of help to you and your business and wish you all the best luck and success for the future moving forward. Thanks again, Peter. Thanks,